This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, we are in the midst of a series on the Gospel of Luke. Um, If you are new here, uh, we have been looking at different encounters that Jesus has with people in the Gospel of Luke between uh, now and Easter. And so, uh, turn to chapter 7 of the Gospel of Luke today. We're going to talk about encountering his forgiveness. Luke chapter 7 And we're going to look at verses 36 through 50 as we talk about encountering his forgiveness. This is just one of those incredibly powerful, beautiful, uh, tender uh, encounters that Jesus has with people. And I just think we can get so much from it this morning. Luke chapter 7 and beginning with verse 36. Follow along uh, with me as as I read. The Bible says, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, Say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you would take your word today and that by the power of your spirit that you would soften our hearts. Lord, that um, where there is hardness in our hearts, that you would would soften it. Uh, Where there is unforgiveness in our hearts, that you would help us to see our own sin 
and our own desperate need of grace and that you would make our hearts tender and soft and forgiving toward others as you have forgiven us. Speak to us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Laura's Amper, Laura Hillenbrand's classic book, Unbroken, tells the story of Louis Zamperini, who was uh, an American pilot who was shot down over the Pacific in World War II uh, and held and tortured in a Japanese POW camp over a period of years. And there came a day in August of 1945 when the camp commandant gathered the POWs together and he said through a translator, the war has come to a point of cessation. Well, these prisoners didn't know what to make of that because they were used to the mind games that their captors would play with them and they wondered if this was just another sadistic trick. And then the commandants invited them to all go down to the river to bathe, which again was just incredibly unusual. And so this whole group of, of American POWs, uh, half-starved, emaciated, began uh, taking off their clothes and going into the water. Louis Zamperini, who by that point was sick with beriberi, uh, all kind of dragged behind the group, but he managed to get his, his clothes off. And so all of these men, these POWs, were down in the river and they're, they're scrubbing and trying to clean themselves and then they heard it. It was the unmistakable roar of a plane engine. And they looked up and it was a single plane, a bomber. And it was headed straight for them. And before they could react, they, they looked up and this bomber was flying low. And on the fuselage, on the sides of the plane, and, and underneath both wings, they could look up and they could see a big blue circle with a white star. It was an American plane. And the, the pilot began to, to blink a, a, a code at them from the red light. And one of the guys who was down in the water was a radio operator. And he could read the code. And he cried out, the war is over. And these POWs began to, 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 to shout for joy and holler and in some cases sob. Well, it took a, a couple of weeks for them to actually be transferred out of the POW camp. And so they had to stay put for a couple of weeks as American planes just constantly rained down supplies and, and all they could eat. And Laura Hillenbrand says of that time, for Louis, these were days of bliss. Though he was still sick, wasted, and weak, he glowed with euphoria such as he had never experienced. His rage against his captors was gone. Like all the men around him, he felt flush with love for everyone and everything. Now, bear in mind, these guys were not home yet. In fact, they hadn't even been moved from the POW camp yet. And yet their perspective was totally different. They were filled with joy. They were filled with love. Why? Simply because of the good news. 
the good news that the war was over, the good news that they were going to be home. And we see in this text how the ultimate good news has the power to fill us with joy and love. So what do we see here in this text? Let's look first of all at the setting. The setting. Um, look uh, beginning with verse 36. It says, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So by this point, the, the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees, are, are trying to get a read on Jesus and some of them were actually seeking truth, like Nicodemus that we meet in John 3. But others are just seeking to find fault. And that seems to be the case with this particular Pharisee, Simon. Because even though he invites Jesus to have a meal at his house, we're going to see later on that he's sort of, he's sort of hostile and he's behaving in sort of a passive-aggressive way toward Jesus. Notice here that it says that Jesus came and, and reclined at the table. So just to sort of get the, the picture in your mind, uh, tables in first, the first century uh, Middle East would not have been, uh, they would not have had chairs around them. They would have been very, very low to the ground. And they would have been surrounded not with chairs, but with cushions. And so the people who were eating would have been resting their left elbow on one of the cushions and eating with their right hand, and their feet would be extended behind them. And there also would have been other people who would have been standing behind those who were eating. Those were people from the town who were welcome to come in and listen to the discussion that was taking place, but they were not to speak. And so this would make quite a painting, wouldn't it? Imagine oil lamps flickering and this table full of food and people around the table uh, reclining and eating and there are people behind them uh, up against the walls listening in. But now something is going to happen that is just going to radically change the picture. We go from the, the setting to the center. The center. Verse 37, it says, A woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. I was teaching a, a Bible study to some guys one time in another church, and, and these guys would put on name tags when they first came into the study. Um, and and uh, one, of my, one of my friends, a guy named, named Tom, one, one morning, and he came, he came in before the study, and on his name tag, instead of writing Tom, he just wrote sinner. <laughs> that would be an accurate name tag for any of us, right? But, but this woman is, is a notorious sinner. It's probably not a big town. People knew each other. This woman was a notorious sinner. She's probably a prostitute. And she's almost certainly had prior exposure to the ministry of Jesus. She's probably heard his teaching. And in the message that he was giving, she found out that there was hope for someone like her. 
and that there could be a new life and that there could be forgiveness for someone like her. And she has experienced that forgiveness. And she has entered into this new life and she's, she's filled with, with love for Jesus. And so she's, she's, she's drawn to him. Um, it's interesting how in the ministry of Jesus that we've seen already in Luke that some of the outcasts, some of the despised people, uh, notorious sinners, you know, people like this woman or people like Levi who was a tax collector, that there, something is drawing them to the ministry of, of Jesus. And we need to ask, you know, are sinners drawn to the ministry of the church today? And if not, why not? Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells about a friend who was ministering to a modern day prostitute. And this woman was just in dire straits. Just at, her life was absolutely coming apart, just in sort of a wretched condition. And so this person's trying to minister to her. And she says, well, you know, have you, have you, have you been to church and she looked with a, at him with a look of just uh, like are you crazy the church why would I ever want to go there they would only make matters worse and rightly or wrongly that's how a lot of people who are far from God perceive us they perceive us as people who are just going to uh, condemn them or look down at them but 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 the, 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 the sinners that are in uh, the minute that are that are around the ministry of Jesus are getting they're not getting that vibe from him they're getting the message that there is hope for them because Jesus was doing a couple of things that were very very different very different from the religious establishment of his time. Very different from the Pharisees, for instance. First of all, Jesus was intentionally reaching out to people who were far from God. He's reaching out to Gentiles. He's reaching out to irreligious Jews. He's, he's reaching out to, you know, to the down and outs like this woman, to the up and outs like, like Levi the tax collector. These were, these were the outsiders. They were the outcasts. Nobody else was intentionally reaching out to these people, but Jesus was. Um, the second thing that was different was the message that they were hearing. Jesus didn't shy away from preaching about sin. <laughs> he preached a lot about sin. <laughs> he preached hard against sin and he called people to repentance. And he wasn't minimizing or watering down any of that. But that message about sin was mingled with a message of grace and love and forgiveness. And this woman has has heard that message. And the Spirit of God has opened her heart and she's experienced this forgiveness and she's experienced new life and now she comes and she wants to show her love in an extraordinary way. Let's keep moving through verse 37. It says, She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet weeping and began to wash his feet with her tears 
She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. Now this is remarkable on a couple of, of levels. First of all, she brings this alabaster jar of, of aromatic ointment, which is almost certainly the most valuable thing that she owns. It's probably an heirloom, undoubtedly the most expensive possession that she owns, and she comes and she just pours it all out. And, and, and here we're back to the parable of the treasure in the field that Jesus told. Jesus tells this parable about this this. This man who's plowing through the field and, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he finds this, this, this treasure and, and he, he covers it back up and then what does he do? He goes and he sells everything else that he has so that he can buy that field because in that field there is a treasure beyond compare. And see for this woman, Jesus and the new life that he has given her, that, that has become a treasure that makes all of her, her most precious earthly treasure, she can joyfully part with it. And she does. And she pours it all out. Notice that she comes up behind him. At first she probably blended in with the crowd from the town that was sort of hanging around the walls. But then she she bends down and she begins pouring this out at the feet of Jesus and, 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 and kissing his feet. And, and at that point, the conversation at the table stops. And you can hear a pin drop. And the only sounds that you would have heard were the sobs of this woman and the, the soft sound of her kissing the feet of Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. And it's just a scene of pure love and humility and sacrifice. And it's beautiful. But to Simon the Pharisee, it was disgusting. Verse 39, it says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Now the huge temptation for us at this point is to say silently, I'm so glad I'm not like that Pharisee. <laughs> Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, in their excellent book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, they, they tell about, um, one of them tells about being in a, in a Sunday school class one time, and the, the teacher uh, was teaching on the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know the story that Jesus tells about the, the, the two guys that go to the temple to pray and one's a Pharisee and the other's a, a tax collector. Well, the tax collector just kind of, you know, he stands there with his head, head bowed and he says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But the Pharisee stands there and he says before God, God, I thank you 
Thank you that I'm not like sinners, sinners like this tax collector. And so this teacher did a really thorough job in talking about all the dangers of Pharisaism and, and, and had obviously done his homework and got through the lesson and then they prayed at the end and the teacher prayed in all seriousness. God, we thank you that we are not like this Pharisee. The truth is that we're a lot like this Pharisee. Because Simon the Pharisee would not have been the only person in that room who was shocked and revolted by this woman's behavior. Probably most of the, most of the normal people from the town who were standing around the walls kind of the the normal, good, upstanding citizens from the town were scandalized by what they were seeing. Embarrassed by what they were seeing. Probably even the other people sitting around the table, which included probably Jesus' own disciples, were shocked and taken aback by what they were seeing. First of all, she's out of line. People, she's not supposed to be interrupting. Eh, the people from the town, they were to be kind of seen but not heard. They weren't to draw attention to themselves in any way. And now all this attention is focused on her. Probably their faces are flush with embarrassment by what is going on as they're all thinking to themselves, look at her. We know who she is. She lets down her hair, which was another social faux pas uh, that you know, a woman wasn't supposed to, to, to do. And, and I mean, the whole scene was so shocking. Just not done. And they're thinking, look at her. She doesn't know how to act. It wasn't just Simon the Pharisee who was, who was looking at her with disgust. No, it included lots of other people. And now we move from the center to the story. The story. Verse 40. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. And now Jesus tells a parable. And this story is not just for Simon. This is for you and me. Verses 41 and 42. A creditor had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? So these two guys both owe money to the same creditor, but they don't both owe the same thing. One owes 500 denarii. And to put that into perspective, a denarius was a day's wages for the average person. And so this is a huge debt. I mean, this is the kind of debt that could get you thrown into prison or get you sold into slavery. The other guy owes 50 
denarii, which is a pretty manageable sum. But then comes the turn. In all the parables of Jesus, most of them contain like this sudden twist, this turn. It's often there that we see the meaning. The sudden shocking twist in the story is that this creditor just forgives the debts of both. Just cancels their debts, wipes them out. Why? Pure, undeserved, unmerited grace. Just grace. And so Jesus asked the question, which of them will love him more? Verse 43, Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. You see, the guy who owed 500 denarii was facing a a situation where he could be facing a life of imprisonment or a life of slavery. His debt was so enormous that it was like an ominous dark cloud hovering over him and just casting a pall over his life. And now in one moment of time, it's gone. It's wiped out. He's forgiven. And in a moment of time, he has a new life. Now what we desperately need to see is that we are that guy. We are the debtor who who owed a debt infinitely greater than 500 denarii or any financial amount. Because the sin debt that we have accrued before a holy God is something that we could never pay. Something that deserves condemnation and eternity separated from God in hell. But what did God do? He sends his son. And Jesus on the cross takes our sin debt upon himself. Takes our very sins upon himself and pays our debt. He takes takes the condemnation that we deserve on the cross. And on the cross, what does Jesus cry out? Paid in full. That we can be forgiven, that we can have new life. And then he rises from the dead that we can have eternal life. And this good news of the gospel should make us explode with joy, with love for God, with love for other people and a desire to spread this to others. But Simon doesn't feel the weight of his sin. Doesn't even think he needs forgiveness. It's obvious from the way Treats Jesus, verse 44, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, 
do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. So in this culture for an honored guest like Jesus, the, just the normal custom would be for a servant to come out and to have a, 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 a basin of water. And of course, they were wearing sandals and they would, they would wash the, the feet of a guest and wipe them with a towel And Jesus says, she has done what you neglected to do, except she's washed my feet with the waterworks from her eyes. And she's wiped them with the towel of her hair. Verse 45, he says, you gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. So again, just the normal Greeting for a guest in that culture would be a a kiss on the cheek, which Simon has neglected to do. But this woman has not stopped kissing the feet of Jesus. Verse 46. He says, you didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. You remember the 23rd Psalm, where God is like the host and welcoming us into the banquet? What does David say there to God? He says, you anoint my head with oil. That was just customary for a gracious host to, to anoint the, the head of a guest with, with, with olive oil. But Jesus says, you neglected to anoint my head with common olive oil, but yet she has anointed my feet with rare and precious perfume. So what are we to conclude from all of this? Verse 47, here it is. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. See, she is not forgiven as a result of what she's done. She's doing what she's doing as a result of being forgiven. This is 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. She has already experienced his forgiveness before she ever comes into the room. And that is why she does this extraordinary act of love. It's because she has experienced the forgiveness of God and the new life that he gives. And when we get that, when we get that good news deep within, the result is love. When we understand the beauty of the gospel, the result is that we love God and we want to show our love for God, which is what she's doing. Mm. There's some takeaways uh, here for us. Um, One is that we need to adopt a strategy of engagement with sinners, not separation from sinners. Uh, 
We're to be separate from sin, but not sinners. Now, there may be situations in our lives where uh, we've come to experience a new life in Christ, and it could be maybe we came from sort of a background of, of substance abuse or something like that, okay, and there are just some people from our past that we just flat don't need to be around for a period of time. That's totally understandable. But in general, Folks, we, we have to understand we are not going to win people to Christ by removing ourselves from their presence. That's just not going to happen. So we have to adopt the strategy of Jesus and not the strategy of the Pharisees. <laughs> the strategy of the Pharisees was just to keep their distance from people who were far from God. The strategy of Jesus is to engage them. So we need to ask ourselves the question, am I engaging people in my own life who are far from God? Family members, friends, people I work with, people I go to school with? We asked the question a couple of weeks ago for 2019, who's your one? Who's your one this year? Who's a person that doesn't know Christ in your life that you're gonna be praying for them faithfully by name, praying for their salvation, sharing the good news of Jesus with them. Here's another principle we should get from this. Jesus doesn't clean his fish until he catches them. Jesus doesn't clean his fish until he catches them. Sometimes when we are around people who are far from God, you know, we want to tell them, uh, we want to talk to them about their behavior and just say, hey, you need to get it together. Get your life right. What we need to be doing is telling them about the only Savior who has the power <laughs> to enable them to change. If we're not telling people the good news of the gospel, we're not witnessing to them. We're called to share Christ with them. That means sharing the message of the cross and the resurrection. Telling them about Jesus. Here's another principle. Even as believers, what we desperately need is not a message of just do better, try harder. That's not the gospel. What we need as believers is to continually go back to the good news of the gospel and to plunge deeply into the meaning of the cross, the resurrection, the work of Christ, because it's understanding that that fills our hearts with love and changes our lives. I love what the, the Puritan pastor, Richard Sibbs, says about this. He says, the Christian's first task is to warm ourselves at the fire of his love and mercy in giving himself for us. Let's look at verses 48 and, and 49. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? We know the answer. Verse 50. And he said to the woman, 
your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She's not saved by any works that she has done. She is saved by trusting, resting on the work of Jesus. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, again, we, we thank you so much for the beauty of the gospel. We thank you for the forgiveness, the, the new life that has come to us completely unmerited, completely undeserved. And Lord, we, we pray that we would be, by your spirit, just, just blown away continually by the depth of your love for sinners like us, the forgiveness that you have given us, the, the new life. And Lord, we pray that, that as we meditate on that more and more, that just more and more love for you, more and more love for others would just arise in our hearts, more of just a delight um, in, in sharing that message with other people. Father, I pray for anyone here today that uh, has not entered into that forgiveness and new life that is found in Jesus. Lord, I pray that today they would see the love of Jesus for them and what he's done for them and that they would turn to him in repentance and faith and receive the free gift of new life that is found only in him. And we pray it in his name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. 
My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.